Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. If we look at where empowerment comes from, literacy is always key. If our basic literacy is low, our agency and our society is low. And so if our death literacy is low, our agency around our end of life and those that we love is going to be low and expensive as a default. That's Michael Hebb, the founder of Death Over Dinner, an organization that encourages people to sit down over a lovely meal with their closest companions and talk, really talk, about the one thing that we all have in common, death. In just three years, Death Over Dinner has provided the framework and inspiration for more than 100,000 dinners focused around end-of-life conversations. I asked Michael to be on the show because I think Death Over Dinner is a great idea and a great resource that will help people have the conversations that we all need to have. But I also asked Michael to be on the show because he just published a new book. It's called Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And I wanted to give him the opportunity to talk about it here on Life, Death, Law. If you really want to broach this subject and you can't imagine how to get started, this book should help. It offers conversation prompts to help get things going and stories that will inspire you to reach out, dig in, and get started. Well, Michael, I just really want to thank you for being on Life, Death, Law today. And one of the reasons I asked you to be on the show is because you have a new book coming out. Let's talk about death over dinner. And I'm very excited to talk about it with you. And my first question to you is, what prompted you to write the book? I actually studied architecture and the classics and realized that I didn't want to spend a great deal of energy personal resources, other people's capital and resources and human energy um, to build buildings so that people could have human experiences, um, which is, you know, is a noble effort. It's, an, it's a, a noble path for people who are passionate about it. But I decided to find a much easier way, a much less resource uh, rich way to bring people together. And, and so I think, I realized that the dinner table is a kind of architecture, is in many ways the first architecture, and it draws us together um, naturally. And, and we've forgotten how to use it in many ways. And there's a lot of things we've forgotten in our modern world. We don't know how to pickle um, or make preserves. <laughs> uh, we've forgotten how to farm and pick what is local and, and growing around us. And you know, we forgot our grandmother's recipes, but we've also forgotten how to um, share meaningful conversations over food. And so, you know, very, very long story short, I realized that I wanted to spend the next many years, if not my entire life, reimagining how we come together around the dinner table, kind of reimagining that space and reinvigorating it. And so I've done a lot of different projects. I mean, thousands of different projects and different topics and different settings in every you know, almost every continent. And and then it finally led me to uh, the conversation about end of life. Yeah, you know, I was reading your bio and I was thinking, that's interesting, you know, do you feel that conversations around death have been the most resonant ones of the projects you've done? Yeah, they are, I, I kind of think about the end of life conversation as a as a positive gateway drug. And let me explain that a little bit. The reasons why I use the table as a place for Conversation. The reason why I think the conversation is important 
it goes back to this first principle that repression and shame are the perfect environments for a disease. And our vitality lives on, and you know this well, you've del- delved into this for years, but our vitality lives on the, where is accessed through knowing ourselves, having hard conversations, facing the things that we're afraid of, and getting through the things, giving some freedom around the things that we repress. And so I realized that the table could be this kind of delivery device for a kind of medicine or a kind of healing. And so when it comes to conversations about death, one, obviously, we all share it. It has the advantage of being something that we've made a cultural taboo. As you know, not everybody is having these conversations, so there's a lot of opportunity to get a new audience excited. It's like when people say, I hate beats. I love that, right? It's like, oh, okay, so you don't like beats. So tell me about the beats you ate in childhood. And invariably, somebody has overcooked or you know, served them canned beets or some sort of variation on destroying this very beautiful vegetable. Every single time I've heard that, I'm able to cook somebody, um, roast somebody a beet, and they're like, oh my God, I, I love this. <laughs> so. so I have to tell you, it's amazing you would pick beets because I had a horrible run-in with beets in nursery school, although I do love beets now. So that's like a very resonant story for me. But also, yeah, I agree. I think death is like sex. It's this universal human experience that we all have and almost never talk about in public. And everyone is has a million questions and many people don't know who to ask. And they're also really interested in everybody else's questions. And so I think talking about death over dinner is awesome, right? It's kind of a brilliant idea. So I fully support this plan. I, I'm really curious, Do you, who comes to these dinners? Can you talk a little bit about that? Are they strangers that come together or are they people that you know? So death over dinner began as a as a response really or this long hunch that i've had or interest to be able to scale the dinners that i had been hosting right so for 15 years i've been hosting these remarkable feasts topic based in some cases really ex- extraordinary gatherings but they'd only been limited to the folks that could fit around a single table i was waiting for a time when technology um, would be cheap enough, accessible enough, and that just kind of made sense to build a site where we could put a dinner model, like a dinner script, into a box and distribute it and get people to be like, oh, I want to open that up, almost like a board game. Um, and so uh, I took a teaching position at the University of Washington um, in their communications graduate school, and we just started playing around with the idea of how do you scale a table and how do you scale a dinner conversation? Like, could there be a conversation that a million people had or 10 million? And so we came up with this idea of like, well, let's start with the hardest topic because it's a great place to fail if we fail. And, you know, obviously, as I'm sure the listeners of this podcast know, how we die in um, the United States and in many other countries is very broken. So it's like, well, there's an opportunity to have a conversation and improve it. So what Death Over Dinner really is, is just a, it's an invitation and then it's a toolkit. Um, so the people that host dinners, I, I actually try to host very few personally, because when I'm hosting a dinner, I become a crutch. People kind of look to me for some level of answers or guidance. And what we wanted to create um, was a opportunity for people to have this conversation with loved ones, with friends, even with strangers, without facilitators, without that 
anybody could have this conversa- conversation. Anybody could be empowered to. Um, to answer your question, complete strangers come to these events that are organized by organizations, hospices, community organizations, Jewish community centers, um, other religious organizations, and a really wide variety of, of organizations have taken up our, our, our toolkit and our model. Families come together. People, when they found out that they've had a terminal diagnosis and no one in their lives seems willing to have the conversation, this is a, an invitation that has been very attractive to um, a lot of people that are, are facing some sort of diagnosis. So uh, I think a lot of thousands of different use cases. Tell me why you decided to write a book since you had the website and the invitation and the toolkit there. Yeah, so Death Over Dinner is very specific. It is for a person that has identified that they are interested in end-of-life conversations and that the idea of hosting a dinner sounds like a great route. The, that, isn't, that isn't everybody, but I think that all of us stand to improve our lives greatly um, in the lives of our loved ones by having a conversation about our end-of-life wishes. And also just a conversation about mortality and life and what we want for the rest of it, however long it may be, you know, if that's 80 years or 100 years or we're going to solve, you know, aging to some extent and it's 200 years, you know, there, there is a great opportunity for human connection and also self-knowledge around, around these conversations. So why go beyond just the website is really that I wanted to show or give a guidance to anybody, regardless of whether they want to have a dinner or just read a book, whether they want to have a conversation on a front porch, during a hike, on a phone call. You know, a lot of people have identified how important this conversation is. And, but very, there's very little guidance out there that's substantial. It seemed like a, a, a perfect opportunity. Yeah, so your book is organized around a series of prompts that people might use to get this conversation started. And I wondered if you wanted to share, you know, two or three of your favorite prompts or two or three that you think would resonate with the podcast audience so they could get a sense of really what's in this book. I mean, I've got a few that I like, but I imagine that you've got some you'd like to talk about. Yeah, I'm curious about yours, but let me um, see. I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a nice range of depth around the questions. So since this is an intimidating conversation for maybe not all of your listeners, but maybe a lot of the people in their lives, one of the things that I often hear is my parents don't want to talk about it or my spouse doesn't want to talk about it. And I'll say, okay, so how many times have you asked them? (laughs) Um, Once, or I haven't even yet. I just can, I have a sense. And, you know, to that, I'll be like, well, if our courtship or our sex lives look like that, you know, the human race would end. (laughs) One of the earlier episodes of this podcast is called talking about the hard stuff with a, I had a good talk with a developmental psychologist who's talking about how best to talk to kids about this stuff. And then we went on to adult kids because adult kids and older parents have a hard time sometimes if they've never made a practice of having these conversations to have them when it matters is tough. So I totally agree. So that's, the thing is, take we have to take rejection in stride with these conversations, just like we do with courtship, just like we do with sex. Like it's, it's part of it. You have to. It's not a time to be shut down. We, you know, if we're really invested in having these questions or these conversations, 
and getting to a place where we can everyone can consent to having a conversation it takes creativity and charm and determination to that point i've created a range of prompts or offered them that we've used at dinners and some of them are kind of everyday um not scary questions that you may even find like in the like the new york times like 36 36 questions to fall in love or some other like of these kind of models where it doesn't feel like you're talking about death and so you know i, I really love the um the questions that begin conversation that are what song would you like performed at your funeral or your memorial and who would sing it you know we we really care about music in this culture or many cultures but that's an accessible point for a lot of people where it doesn't feel like they're talking about cremation versus funeral you know burial and then or what would your you know it's kind of a prosaic question but what would your last meal be again another way that just another question that people have heard before that doesn't feel all that threatening and you'll get surprising answers and then you know my favorite question is at at whether it's at a dinner or a conversation, you know, on a hike, or um, you name it, is if you had 30 days left to live, how would you spend it? You know, how do you feel when you find out that you're no longer going to be on this planet, as far as as far as we know? And the follow-up questions that you can enter into around what does your last day look like? What does your last hour look like? Where are you? Who's around you? How do you feel? That that creates a a very a, a profound sense of emotion in anyone I've I've asked this question to, and a real inventory of self, and in many cases a discovery of self. People surprise themselves and their loved ones with that with their answers. I completely agree. I mean, I you know I have that conversation with my clients all the time, but around the preparation of advanced directives and. Often it's the first time people have really had to think clearly about what they do or don't want at end of life. And I think the more you can land it in the emotional and social context that you're going to meet it in, uh, the better. So I agree with you completely. Although I do have a question. You did say in your book, it took you five years to get your advanced directive done. And I thought that was incredibly human and very telling because that's so true. But what was your resistance to it since you are in the business of helping people land in the reality of death is a universal human experience. So what got in your way? If you, if you don't mind sharing, because I think a lot of people listening are going are gonna to relate to whatever it was. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's not the emotional, uh, it wasn't an emotional block, you know, because I live in this terrain. What it really is, is I hate forms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hate filing, you know, the taxes drive me crazy. Like, I don't like, I don't, when, when I'm on an airplane and, they uh, hand you and you're flying into it um, back to the U.S. or into another country and you're are given your custom forms. Like, I even bristle at that. So it's really, there's a lot of reasons why people resist. And for me, it's like, literally, I'm just terrible at forms. Now, as far as resisting something for five years after doing this work around an emotional block, that very much happened to me in the form of asking my mother and my brother to have a death dinner with me and to have this discussion. That was um, because I was afraid of that discussion, um, that level of intimacy with my family members. So 
there's there's this very simple blockage, <laughs> and, then and then I understand the, you know the more heart based, the fear based blocks that people have around this conversation. How did it feel when you got it finished? It feels great. The beauty of this work, I mean, having these conversations, expressing um, your wishes to your loved ones, hearing your wishes, um, getting the forms done, is what I've again and again what I've realized is your you're brought into an awareness of a weight that you didn't know you were carrying. I totally agree with that. Yeah. You identify, you're like, oh man, I was, it's like being stressed out about something without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, that, that's been the experience that I've had. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I tell, I tell my clients all the time that actually what I offer is peace of mind. I mean, lawyers tend to think what they offer are documents, but the documents themselves are important, but but the peace of mind is the thing that most people experience when they finish. So that's actually really interesting to me to have you say that. And you asked me what my favorite prompt was, and that was the one about legacy. What would you want your legacy to be? Because I think that's a moment when people can review their life and consider their values and, and use this conversation as an opportunity to embody them now, you know, while they're here. Yeah. So I really like that prompt. Well, and it's also like the legacy prompt is like the final meal. I mean, it, it isn't a scary conversation, yet it's a conversation about death. Legacy is, is one of those like exciting, heart opening. It doesn't have the, that scent about it that, it that you may be talking about end of life wishes, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> I, I hope within like, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, we don't have that, you know, we don't even lace that conversation with fear. We just see it as an opportunity. But, you know, I think most things that, you know, if we look at anything that we're resisting or any conflict in our lives, um, we have the, a neurological or a frame alteration that we can practice, which is just seeing that, that as an opportunity for more vitality. I mean, I've always felt that, you know, denial and aversion are my favorite psychic tools. So it's uh-huh. incredible to me that I do this for a living where I sit down with people and encourage them to do neither one, right? All day long. Yeah. About this very um, human and transformational experience we go through. So I'm really curious too, what, what the outcome of these conversations are. You, I didn't, I don't see it so much in the book because I think the book is a series of invitations for people to talk, but I'm curious in your own experience, what, what, what happens after that dinner for a lot of people? Yeah. I mean, what happens, I mean, there's specific things that happen. Like you'll notice um, with um, Scott Creeling, the former uh, president of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Idaho, who's now president of Western States for Anthem. Um, so really responsible for an incredible amount of healthcare for an incredible number of people in the United States. He hadn't had this conversation with his parents. And in having having a conversation about end of life, which was very difficult for him because he had kind of an icy relationship with his father, but in sparking just some basic questions, both inspired by Death Over Dinner and our often partner, the Conversation Project, what Scott was able to realize was that, you know, and able to diagnose was that his mother was suffering from early onset Alzheimer's and also able to identify that they wanted to move from Tucson to Boise and be closer to Scott. And he was able to, you know, move them into a nursing home and give them the care that they needed, heal his relationship with his father and spend and get his grandchildren to have really 
meaningful time with his grandparents where it could have very easily been that, you know, they, they slipped further and further away from each other or there were more complications or difficulties um, with that separation between Tucson and Boise. You know, that's just one, a very concrete example, life-changing example for his parents, for his kids, for himself. And, you know, and now he's become one of the leaders in end-of-life conversations um, in the United States, really out of the transformation that he saw personally. But I think what's more important than even those specifics is, is the literacy. So what we're suffering from in the United States around end-of-life is a lack of empowered choices or a lack of empowered conversations. Um, things happen to us. The medical, the medicalization of death, the process that we go through um, around our final days often feels like it happens to us, not something that we take a empowered relationship to. And so if we look at where empowerment comes from, literacy is always key. If we're not, if our basic literacy is low, our agency and our society is low. And so if our death literacy is low, our agency around our own um, end of life and those that we love is going to be low and expensive as a default. I think that that's the more important thing is the where we're little by little strengthening literacy every time we anyone has one of these conversations, either internally or with someone they love, because they're more likely to have a difficult conversation with a doctor or a lawyer or an insurance provider. Right. I always say you people are having these conversations in the very worst context possible. Generally speaking, not, not one of those three professionals has any training in compassion or much interest in empathy often, because you don't go into those professions generally if what you want to do is have meaningful conversations with people. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't mean to like bash my profession, but truthfully, the training for lawyers is generally is to identify problems and, and minimize them. It's not to go deep into really human interactions, although I think it should be, which is part of the reason for the podcast. So I think providing people with other forms makes a ton of sense. And speaking of that, you know, uh, other guests on this podcast are people who are hosting uh, death cafes. Yeah. And, and I'd love to, and that's a different way for people to come together and talk about death. And I wondered how you, how you think these two projects uh, complement each other or are different in some ways maybe appropriate for some people versus others, you know, and whether you, uh, that's kind of an open source movement as well. You know, anybody can host a death cafe. So I'm just curious what you think about, about that and the sort of cultural landscape right now around these conversations, because actually there's a lot going on. Yeah. We need as many models as possible. We just launched livewake.com as well, which is a follow up or cousin project to death over dinner where people are given the tools to host or suggest someone in their life that they should host a living wake um, for someone, whether they're, you know, have a terminal diagnosis or a milestone birthday, or just think it's would be an extraordinary thing to more or less attend your own memorial and, or to hear from your loved ones, how they feel about you, or maybe there's some grievances that they want to air. <laughs> You're brave. Um, just like, just like Tom Sawyer. Just like Tom Sawyer. Yeah, and I it, it was inspired by the fact that a living wake happened to me. It was organized for me by dear friends of mine when I turned forty. But 
Um, as far as death cafes and death dinners and the differences and the similarities, death cafes are generally um, strangers, you know, often in coffee shops and different settings, um, which is perfect. It's a great entry point or even further deepening for people who want to start to personally explore these conversations. Death over dinner is an opportunity that's more focused, not exclusively, but it has, it's a bit more focused on bringing together the people, the decision makers, the stakeholders, the people that are closest to you, the people that actually will be, will potentially be making decisions for you or right alongside you as, as you're in your final chapter. Having, like you said, not having that conversation in a crisis when you're dealing, not in the ICU, not when you're talking to an oncologist in any of these other not so desirable settings, but around a beautiful meal, we want a really nuanced understanding of what our loved ones, friends want. The conversation is great among strangers. We learn about ourselves, we make new friends, we get inspired, we get over our fears. And then the added layer when um, the most important people in your life are in the room is really substantial. Like I've never done a death dinner with a married couple where I haven't heard, I've never heard that story, or you've never heard X before, or I've, you know, there's always a reveal and not in a negative way, like a really beautiful reveal between people that have spent their lives together happens around these conversations. And we really just want to know, like, you know, advanced care directives, living wills don't always dependent upon, you know, which form um, and, and, you know, whether you've done the conversation project kit or where you've done it, done any of the other, the five wishes or they, some, they don't always get all of the nuance. They don't ever get all of the nuance. I don't think is another outcome of dinners that people sometimes write down letters uh, or write down instructions together, or just really curious, you know, what, what different groups choose to do at the end of, at the end of that meal? Do they meet again? Is it a one-time thing? Do they, I'm just curious what you've seen. Yeah. So there's, everybody gets next steps or as long as the host is, um, you know, it's really dependent upon the host. We haven't, in a future version, we will allow people to invite their friends to death over dinner um, within the website itself um, so that people will be able to get push notifications and things like that, even if they've just accepted an invitation. So that's in a future iteration, probably in the next six months or so, um, which will be lovely because then we can make sure people get their homework and make sure that they have those next steps after the dinner and that we stay in touch with them. We don't know how often it turns into next steps because we haven't had to. We're not funded by a, a metric-obsessed organization. <laughs> <laughs> And for five years, we were self-funded, which meant there was zero funding, and we weren't interested in metrics at all. Um, but now we're part of um, this incredible wellness collective called Round Glass. So we're trying to less about understanding the metrics of use, but more about delivering more services now that we have some resources. What's the most surprising thing about this project to you? Well, I think the most surprising thing has been that it works, right? Like, so... When I first had the idea, I had the hunch, but all of the medical professionals I spoke to um, out of the gate, or many of them, were like, there is no way. <laughs> you know, that's, 
<laughs> that's a non-starter um, of a conversation. To see that the combination of the of two very unlikely things, or seemingly unlikely things, death and dinner, has hit such a remarkable chord. So that I mean that that has been really surprising. We we were like maybe three thousand dinners happen, not upwards of two hundred, maybe. 300,000 dinners so far, maybe a million people um, sitting down to have this conversation um, within five years. That's, that's been surprising and really you know, fulfilling. You know, the other thing is that we live in a Yelp age. R- reviews, customer reviews are everywhere. <laughs> maybe two everywhere. I don't know. But they're certainly a big part of our culture. And we haven't received a single negative review from a dinner experience. That would be surprising, given the diversity of people who would who would show up. You know, I agree with you. I just think there's this incredible desire for straightforward and human information about this. And the gatekeepers of the information up to now have primarily been doctors and lawyers who haven't been forthcoming uh, with people or realistic or, or compassionate. So I agree with you. I, everywhere I go, I just run into people who want to know more about this. And that's partly why this podcast exists. So I really want to thank you for being on the show, and I want to—I will in the show notes post uh, links to your your new book. Let's talk about death over dinner, and uh, I really appreciate you coming. And is there something that you wished I'd asked that I had forgotten to ask? Oh wow! Um, no, I think that we covered it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could certainly talk for days, but um, I think I think we got to the meat of the conversation pretty quickly. You've just listened to my conversation with Michael Hebb the founder of deathoverdinner.org and the author of the new book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. To learn more about Michael and his work, go to his website, heb.life. That's H-E-B-B dot life, L-I-F-E. To learn more about Death Over Dinner, go to deathoverdinner.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye. Bye.